The Fanboy 100. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 100 of the Fanboy Podcast. How is everybody doing out there? Um, you know, I've kept you guys waiting for episode 100. It has been quite a long and winding road trying to get here. It's funny to think of all of the different permutations this episode has undergone in terms of what I, how I was planning on structuring it, in terms of my ambitions for it. At one point when I was on pace to complete it on a normal schedule, it was going to arrive smack dab in the middle of June, coincidentally on the sixth anniversary of Man of Steel coming out. So originally when I was thinking about the hundredth episode, I was going to do like a whole long form crazy thing on Man of Steel since in many ways that film is the reason I'm here talking to you. The whole reason that you know I exist is because back in 2013, I began writing about and discussing Man of Steel with such passion and such gusto online and even writing blogs about it on my personal blog. I had a Tumblr back in the day that friends of mine were like, hey, you should write for a website and you should, you know, you should do this like professionally because you bring up good points and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, from there, I just started contacting the websites that I that I read most frequently and submitted columns and saw if anyone was interested. And then the rest, as they say, is history. Here we are six years later. So, you know, I was thinking about doing a whole Man of Steel thing. I'm still thinking of doing some of that, but it's just funny to think, you know, that was back in June. And then I kind of went into my hiatus where I kind of just needed to get away from everything. And then I had a concept for the show that was much like a very kind of different format entirely. And it's just, I almost feel like the universe, especially these last couple of weeks, has been trying to tell me to like, don't reinvent the wheel. Stop trying to tweak things so much. Just do what you do. Because it's funny, because two weeks ago, I was getting ready to record this episode, you know, the Fanboy 100, a big milestone episode for me. And the day before I was set to record, you know, finally some pain in my mouth and in my gums had gotten so unbearable, I had to go to the dentist and try to get some answers, to which I found out, hey, Mario, you need a root canal. And it's an emergency. It's a miracle that you're not experiencing constant never-ending, blinding pain that keeps you up at night. So since you're not feeling that and you've gotten lucky, that's amazing, but you need to come in tomorrow because we need to fix this because it's bad. So I had an emergency root canal at a time where I was supposed to be recording it. Then last week, I was getting around to recording episode 100. I'd even kind of put together the intro and everything. I'd put together my show notes and I was ready to go. And I just got crazy sick the night before recording, like aggressively sick, where like the day had gone a certain way and I had felt fine. And then it's around 7.30 p.m. My family and I, we went out, we went to walk the dog. We had a little family 
quality time together and then I get back home and something just hit me and hit me hard. I started sneezing, I had hives around my eyes. I started wheezing, I'm asthmatic, which you know is not something I really talk about here in the show and it's not something that regularly impacts my life, but I started to wheeze and my wife started freaking out and I don't know what it was, but something hit me very aggressively last Thursday at 7.30 and I ended up spending all of Friday in bed and just kind of unable to do much of anything. It felt like a super intense cold, which is kind of funny to be talking about like a cold, you know, cold is not a very severe sickness, but this was an aggressive sucker. And I was just, you know, I went through an entire box of Kleenex. My lungs were mad at me. My nose was mad at me. My throat, every time I swallowed was in pain. Something hit me and hit me real hard. And then the funny thing is, I thought I was out of the woods the next day on Saturday. I had to work. I had a weekend of events ahead of me. I had to do a bar mitzvah on Saturday. I had a wedding and a block party on Sunday. And in the middle of Saturday, I'm thinking, oh, looks like I kicked this. Looks like I'll be able to, you know, the show must go on and I'm going to get to do my, my, my DJ gigs this weekend. And I got healthy just in time. And then I'm telling you, it came back as soon as I got through all that. You know, I got through Saturday night. I got through my double on Sunday, very long day. And then on Monday, I wake up and I feel sick again. And it wasn't as bad as Friday, but it was back. And now here we are. It's Friday again. All right. It is. It has been a week and a half, a week and a day, I should say, since I initially got sick last Thursday night. And it's still, there's something still kind of going on. I don't know what it is, but right now I've got a good window of time here where I'm feeling pretty good, pretty healthy, pretty energized, super motivated to talk to talk about some of these crazy topics that have jumped up this week. So I figure let's strike while the iron's hot. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's go ahead though and bring back that news segment that I used to have here on the show that will now be a regular fixture here now that the Revengers is, is going to become like a specialty thing that happens once a month. Um, so th that means that the weekly news will now be covered here on The Fanboy. So without further ado, I've kept you waiting for episode 100. There is no reason to keep you waiting any longer. Let's go ahead and get into the week's top stories. The Hollywood Reporter broke the internet last night when they exclusively revealed that Marvel Studios' Kevin Feige is actually going to be switching over to a different studio under Disney to make a Star Wars movie. That's right. We all know Disney owns Lucasfilm, so this that makes this, uh, th this move rather easy to make, especially if you're Kevin Feige and a diehard Star Wars fan. He is now going to make a film for Lucasfilm. This does not mean, of course, that he's done with Marvel Studios or the MCU, not by any stretch of the imagination, but he is an avowed diehard Star Wars fan, and apparently, in a late summer meeting with Kathleen Kennedy and studio co-chairman Alan Horn, as well as Alan Bergman, he kind of uh, discussed his idea for a Star Wars film, and right away the studio said, we need to make this movie. 
So now the big question becomes, what does this mean? How do we feel about it? Well, you know how, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. And my very first, my gut response to this news is that it's very good news. It makes a ton of sense, but primarily from a business standpoint, from a, you know, sort of studio philosophical standpoint, not necessarily because I think Kevin Feige has it in him to make an epic Star Wars movie. I honestly don't know a lot about Kevin Feige, creatively speaking, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I think in terms of as a business move, as an overall move for a studio, as a maneuvering for a studio that's trying to keep the Star Wars brand alive and, 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 and percolating and firing on all cylinders, you know, it makes a ton of sense because look, he's an architect, you know, he's not a storyteller and that seems to be what Lucasfilm has wanted. You know, I, I've discussed this before. But the philosophy over at Lucasfilm has been evolving almost film by film since the franchise got relaunched in 2015, if you really think about it. You know, in the beginning, remember, they wanted to be very filmmaker driven. They hired a bunch of up and coming, exciting directors like Gareth Edwards, Josh Trank, Lord and Miller and Colin Trevorrow. Then what happened? One by one, the studio and Kathleen Kennedy began hijacking these filmmakers' movies. You know, there's the famous example of what happened with Gareth Edwards on Rogue One, where they brought in Tony Gilroy to redo a ton of it. Or, in the case of Josh Trank and Colin Trevorrow, they got fired before they got even started on their movies. Remember, Josh Trank at one point was going to be doing some kind of bounty hunter movie with Simon Kinberg. Might have been a Boba Fett movie, and that got yanked away. Then there's Colin Trevorrow, who was at the time dealing the hot hand with Jurassic World, and you know Steven Spielberg had, had kind of endorsed him. And he got fired before he could make episode nine. And then Lord and Miller got fired two weeks before Solo, A Star Wars Story, was set to finish principal photography. So right away, you know, the, the, the philosophy has changed drastically in the last four years. You know, it went from in 2015, or they probably announced it more so in 2014. So we go from 2014 with Kathleen Kennedy basically trying to signal to the world, hey folks, Star Wars is back. These characters you adore are returning. We're also going to explore new corners and new facets of this wonderful galaxy that George Lucas has given us this sandbox with which all of us creative types can now play in and create the stories that you're going to lose your minds over for decades and decades to come. And on top of that, we've hired a whole bunch of the best up-and-coming talent, the people who just gave you Godzilla, the people who just gave you Jurassic World, Lord and Miller who've been on this hot streak. You know, they had been doing 21 Jump Street and the Lego movies. You know, they, they kind of came out of the gate saying, look at all of this exciting young talent and we're going to set them loose on the Star Wars galaxy. You know, that was kind of like the opening salvo. That was the first shot fired out to the world about what Star Wars was about to become. And then little by little, everything has just switched. You know, uh, Michael Arndt's script was tossed out for episode seven. Uh, you know, all the firings that we were talking about happened. 
Uh, I mean, listen, there's no need to recap it all. You can just go back and find some older episodes of this here show, and I, I'm sure you'll hear me discussing this at length. But the reason that I did a small recap of it is that Kevin Feige is like exactly what they need, right? They, they want an architect. They want someone whose primary talent is in assembling a team, giving them the parameters of the story they want told, then making sure they have the tools they need to tell that story. And, you know, in Feige's case, you know, he has a proven track record with doing that kind of thing, you know, and, and he seems to make sure seemingly from the outset that, you know, he and his team of people who he's hired are all on the same page. That helps you avoid all of this stuff that happens where scripts get tossed and directors get replaced and all of this sort of back and forth with the studio kind of hijacking movies. The way you avoid that is by having some sort of mega producer who has a cushy relationship with the studio, who has a proven track record of putting together a team, kind of setting, these are the kind of rules, this is the framework, now go create your thing, I'm gonna be keeping an eye on you, but I trust you, because you know we kind of set the tone right from the beginning of what it is this film needs to be. So Kevin Feige, is kind of like the perfect response from a business philosophy, from a franchise world building sort of look at things. You know, Kevin Feige is a perfect answer for that if you're Lucasfilm and you have been basically trying to go, okay, the filmmaker-driven thing doesn't really seem to work, or at least it isn't really working out so hot for Star Wars. We, we seem to need some sort of cohesive, unified vision here so we're all on the same page. So enter Kevin Feige, you know? So that, that's why to me, it makes a ton of sense. And it's funny, in, in thinking about all this, you know, in preparing for today's show, I was kind of looking at, you know, looking at these Star Wars films that have come out. And, you know, because the, the, this sort of internal battle that's playing out in public about filmmaker-driven versus producer-driven, you know, Ryan Johnson's episode eight is an example of a very filmmaker-driven movie. And, you know, I, I'm not going to get into my opinions on that because, again, that is a horse that I've beaten to death and then some. But it is kind of a small miracle that Johnson got his movie done before the studio started really, you know, flexing its muscles and changing things on people. And I think the reason that he got so lucky, honestly, wasn't because of the faith they had in him or because, you know, Abrams saw what he was doing and he thought this is going to be awesome. It's a great continuation of episode seven and it's going to set us up for episode nine. No, I don't think it's anything like that. I think the reason that Johnson was able to make the movie he made and that it didn't get changed too much and that he was able to just stick to his vision, as polarizing as it has been for, you know, some within the Star Wars fandom, is literally a technical thing. I think the only reason that we got a filmmaker-driven episode eight in The Last Jedi was because he filmed it before episode seven even came out. Lucasfilm stacked these productions in such a way that there was no real time to see how the audience was gonna take the things. Episode eight was being filmed before episode seven had even come out. And I, I mean, I honestly, I remember that like vividly 
because I was in England. I was at Leaves Den Pinewood Studios, the famous Pinewood. We're walking around the James Bond stage because that's where they were filming uh, Assassin's Creed, which I was there to cover at the time and interview Fassbender and all those people. And that was a lot of fun. But one of the neat little perks was, aside from walking around in stupefied awe, that I'm on the James Bond stage at like the Pinewood in, you know, outside of London, uh, they just mentioned, oh yeah, by the way, you know, this hallway, this corridor is, uh, this was used for the, the, the Imperial, what was it? The, like the Star Destroyer, whatever it is that they call the Star Destroyers now, because, you know, it's not a Star Destroyer because it's not the Empire, it's the First Order, but, you know, he, he pointed out that this corridor was, uh, used for that. And next month, at the time, this was October of 2015. And he said, next month on November 15th, Lucasfilm will be taking over this soundstage because they have episode eight coming in. So that's why we have to finish filming what we're filming here in the next couple of weeks and so on and so forth. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's crazy. You know, Ryan Johnson is coming here to film and he'd already been filming. And it kind of just dawned on me at the time. And they're coming to Pinewood on November 15th. Meanwhile, Episode 7, which is the first Star Wars of this new post-George Lucas world, hadn't even come out yet. It was supposed to come out the following month, like December, I want to say, 17th of 2015. So Johnson got a ton of filming and got his script approved and got everything done way before the studio got way more hands-on. And I think it's kind of like a small miracle. So for those of you who prefer the, the filmmaker-driven route, and for those of you who loved The Last Jedi, you know, I think we just kind of figured out how Johnson got so lucky so as to not have his studio, uh, you know, not have his movie massaged so heavily by the studio, you know? And that's just something that just kind of dawned on me while preparing for this show. Um, but, you know, back to Feige, you know, what they've done here in hiring someone like him, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very smart move for, for, for a studio that's looking for films that are, you know, that, that, that have world building, for films that can connect to others, for films that are obsessed more with universes rather than standalone experiences. It makes sense to bring in a producer like Feige, who has already, you know, proven over the course of these last 11 years that that's, you know, kind of his thing. That's his brand, you know, building out universes rather than telling really unique, interesting standalone stories. That's kind of his niche. And uh, listen, he landed over at Lucasfilm. I know that we haven't seen the the last of him at Marvel Studios. In fact, there seems to be a counter narrative coming from the studio that, came, no, this doesn't mean Kathleen Kennedy's been depowered. This doesn't mean that Kevin Feige is going to come in and take a more aggressive role at Lucasfilm. This is literally just for this movie. And Kathleen is just busy with so many other things. She's also working on Indiana Jones and other projects. And, you know, this just gives, you know, th this is something that can be handled by somebody else. And Fe Feige is that perfect somebody else. You know, that's kind of like the way they want to phrase this. But it does kind of feel like, you know, this is part of that evolution I was talking about. You know, things at Lucasfilm are changing. And it's funny to think that they're changing because Star Wars is such a, a behemoth 
of a property and it's so popular and it's such a huge deal, you'd never think that the that the, that the guardian of such a you know huge IP in Kathleen Kennedy would suddenly kind of like be maybe on their way out or maybe kind of losing their stroke, you know, when Star Wars as a whole seems to be doing so well. But, um, you know, the, the, there's little reasons for Disney to be concerned. And I guess they think you know, bringing in Feige is like going to the goose that laid the golden eggs and trying to see if he could lay some golden eggs in a different, uh, in a different nest for a little while. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting, you know, and I wish him well. You know, I have no idea of what to expect from the film, you know, his his Star Wars movie. I don't know what to expect from it tone-wise or story-wise because, you know, like I said earlier, it's not like Feige is this prolific writer with a track record for what his storytelling style is. You know, he's not. He doesn't have any writing credits. He's just a producer. So I don't really know what makes the guy click. I only know that he knows how to build a great machine. So, you know, we'll see. But um, good luck, Mr. Feige, with all that. And it's going to be very interesting to see in the months and years ahead whether or not he kind of makes a full switch, a full sw transition over to Lucasfilm. Because remember, that that is kind of one of the interesting little subplots here, right? Because, you know, he's kind of been open and public about the fact that he was not a big comic book person growing up. And he did, you know, he, he's been pretty upfront about the fact that a lot of his knowledge with these characters began to, you know, he, he began learning about them once he started working as a producer on them. You know, once he started working with Avi Arad on the original Spider-Man movies, once, I, th I, he, I think he might have even had something to do with Blade. But essentially, his knowledge of the comic book world and his passion for it only really began once he started realizing how much money can be made on these movies and working along people who were much more into it than he was. So he's not a huge comic book guy. He's a Star Wars diehard fan. That is what they want us to think. And I think you know, he has made that clear in the past. So when you think about that, if you're Kevin Feige, like, okay, you know, you know, now you've made a name for yourself as one of the biggest producers in all of Hollywood, possibly in the history of Hollywood. And now you kind of like, in theory, have your pick of the litter. You know, in Hollywood, that is kind of the outset. You know, that, that is the mindset where once you've achieved success, the world becomes your oyster and opportunities open to you. And suddenly people with money start opening their, 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 their checkbooks to you and asking you, Hey, what would you like to make? You know, that's the power that success gives you in Hollywood. And this may be the first example of Feige really flexing that power, where it's like, okay, I just delivered Avengers Endgame. I've shown you guys what I could do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I have an established track record. But what do I want to make? I want to make a Star Wars movie. And it seems like he's now using that power and that clout to leverage his way into a property that he is naturally and innately more excited about, possibly, than he is about the Marvel stuff. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see if Ke if this is like step one in Kevin Feige eventually transitioning out of Marvel and over to Lucasfilm to work on Star Wars stuff. Like, yeah, we'll see. This is all just you know, the exciting stuff now, right? This is where we just kind of speculate 
and wonder what this could all be. Who knows? Maybe he's going to make one Star Wars movie. It's going to flop on sight and he's going to have to just, you know, just stick with what he knows, you know, stick with Marvel. Who knows? But that is kind of, you know, my, that, that is the end of my thoughts on Kevin Feige and Star Wars and Marvel because while that was the big story last night, the big story today is that Kevin Feige is not only producing that Star Wars movie, but guess what? Remember we were talking about in episode 99? We were talking about the fact that Spider-Man is out of the MCU. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? It came to light this morning that Marvel Studios and Sony have struck a deal, and that means that we are going to get to see our boy Tom Holland and his Spider-Man back in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's right. Kevin Feige is going to produce the next Spider-Man 3, which will be set in the MCU, and... You know, it looks like he, he and he still is going to appear in another MCU movie. So it looks like, you know, maybe they found a way to maybe split the difference on him leaving. You know, maybe they're going to let Sony do its thing because Sony is still definitely doing all of its, you know, Spider-Man universe world building for their little corner of the Marvel Universe. You know, they just announced that uh, I believe his name was Hutch Parker from the X-Men franchise has now joined the creative team of Andy Serkis's Venom 2. They've also announced apparently, oh, and I don't know if they've announced, but it's come out that they're also working on a Madam Web movie. And we, as you guys know, Madam Web, you know, she has ties to the multiverse. She's, you know, she's a character who's very much known for bringing that element into Peter Parker's world, this idea of the alternate dimensions and the multiverse and all that kind of stuff. So it it's... It just goes to show you, back to what I was discussing in episode 99, that Sony has very shrewdly and very wisely been preparing to take Tom Holland's Spider-Man, you know, for its own and, and to use Tom Holland's Spider-Man to make their Sony Spider-Man Marvel movies a bigger deal. You know, that's why they've been working on Morbius and Silver and Black and they've been talking to people about Night Stalker and or what is it Night Watch? What's his name? Uh, they've been talking to people about Craven. That's why they hired a, a very well known person, Andy Circus, to to direct Venom Two. You know, th they have been preparing to make this Spider Man universe for a bit. You know, and they, and they have Spider Man into the Spider Verse as a great way to kind of get us used to this idea of seeing Peter Parker's from alternate dimensions. And to give us the idea that there's way more than one Spider-Man. And now they're working on Madam Web, which is another one of these stories that in theory is going to, you know, continue to educate the audience on the fact that, yes, you see this Peter Parker, this Tom Holland, Peter Parker in the Avengers movies, but he's not the only Spider-Man. And he can actually be in these movies, too, because these can be set in a different universe, or we can do a storyline where that Peter Parker you know gets taken to someone else's universe, and so on and so forth. So it seems like Sony is getting to have its cake and eat it too, because they're continuing to map out their, you know, their Sony universe of Marvel characters, while Marvel Studios continues to have access to Spider-Man. So it looks like 
you know, they, they must have reached some kind of deal. It looked like the door was closed when I recorded here uh, episode 99 three weeks ago. But now, Spidey is back home. And for, who, for how long? Who knows? But, you know, and will this stop what they're working on? No, it won't. And the only thing that's probably going to happen, I imagine, is that Kevin Feige and the other people that he has, you know, that he has, you know, his creative brain trust over at Marvel Studios is likely now to rely less on Peter Parker and to put, you know, they're probably going to put less eggs, fewer eggs in the Peter Parker Spider-Man basket now that they see that Sony can very easily just, you know, snatch him back. So it's good to know that he's back. It's going to be interesting to see what level of importance he has in whatever Marvel Studios features he's still going to be featured in. And it's also very interesting to see how Spider-Man 3 is going to go and whether or not Feige will allow the third Spider-Man movie, which he's now the producer of, to continue to help build out Sony's extension of the Marvel Universe. It's going to be very interesting to see how that all plays out. And, you know, it's, it's very you know, interesting how much can change in just a matter of a couple of weeks from one episode to the next. You know, here's this great new update on Spider-Man, you know, and something else I spoke about in the last episode where there's been some interesting updates is the Joker. You know, the Joker movie's coming out. We're only a week away from the arrival of Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie, and I'm very excited for it. But still, the conversation is raging on about whether or not this film should be getting made, whether or not this film is appropriate, whether or not this film is going to instill violence or inspire violence and all this and so on and so forth. And it's gotten to the point where, like, the LAPD has actually released a statement about the fact that they're going to... Well, you know, I, I, here's what I'm, we're going to say about... Uh, about the LAPD. Here's like their official statement on it. The Los Angeles Police Department is aware of public concerns and the historical significance associated with the premiere of Joker. While there are no credible threats in the Los Angeles area, the department will maintain high visibility around theaters when it opens. Now look, I am with all of you who think that this is a little bit overkill, who feel like this is being turned into some sort of weird social justice issue or some sort of, you know, thing for the outrage culture, and it's silly. I'm with you on that. It's just a movie, and this idea that, that pieces of entertainment have this very direct correlation on acts of violence, I mean, it's been disproven already. And it's also just a weird thing for us to be peddling, because now it's like, all right, so now we have to, like, you know... <laughs> Are filmmakers now going to have to be like held to this sort of higher standard of like, oh my goodness, I can't make this movie because it features a very broken, fractured, flawed protagonist, and this protagonist does not behave in ways in which society finds productive, so now I have to rewrite the whole thing. You know, it's this weird sort of like, um, you know, filmmakers are not supposed to be our teachers. You know, our parents are. Life is. Teachers are. Filmmakers are artists. And they're meant to create pieces of art that will, you know, be provocative, that will make you think or that will make you feel things. You know, and I spoke about that on the last show. But what's interesting here, you know, there's, there's one angle in this where I see why 
people are thinking this way. You know, and that is what happened in Aurora back in 2012. Because if you guys know, there was a mass shooting at, a, at the premiere for The Dark Knight Rises. And the reason that this is problematic for the Joker movie is that the guy was like calling himself the Joker. And he was dressed in kind of a deranged way and he might have even had some face paint. I don't even remember. I, I don't remember all of that. But I just know that when it came out... He was basically acting like he was the Joker. He was this crazy psychopath and he was there to kill people at the opening of the Batman movie because he's the freaking Joker. And, you know, it's it's an un unbelievable time to be alive where this stuff happens. But that happened in 2012. That was only seven years ago and there are people related to the victims of those who, to them, the idea of a, you know, mass murdering guy in Joker makeup you know, it doesn't really strike them as all that entertaining. And to have a studio kind of making a movie where that kind of puts you in the psyche of a troubled gunman or a troubled murderer, I could see why they would have some qualms. And thankfully, you know, the parents of the, the Aurora victims and the relatives of the Aurora victims, they're not so much decrying the movie. And that, I think that's important. Something that's lost in some of these headlines that I've seen about this topic is that you would get the sense that the Aurora victim families are against Todd Phillips' Joker movie. But it's not so much that they're against it. In their statement, they made it very clear that it's about their political donations to candidates and lawmakers who stand in the way of gun reform. That's their main thing. They don't think that you should not be allowed to make a movie like this. They think the studio is basically playing politics, where like they release this very sanitized statement about how much they care about the, uh, you know, the, the gun issue and how they're not trying to celebrate violence and this and that. But you know, the, the, the parents are basically saying, you know, asking for change is a good first step, but it's nowhere near enough. This is what they said in their statement. They said, Warner Brothers and its parent company must put its money where its mouth is and announce that it will no longer provide political donations to candidates and lawmakers, lawmakers who stand in the way of gun reform. And honestly, that's a very specific and very interesting issue because it does seem hypocritical. It does seem contradictory for the studio to be acting like it's this great champion for change and trying to, you know, uh, you know, just they're putting on a good public face in defending the film. But meanwhile, behind closed doors, they're kind of, you know, in the eyes of the Aurora, you know, survivors, they're kind of helping add to this gun climate. So like that is their main issue. You know, nowhere in this statement that I just read from you, read for you, is this idea of you're not allowed to make this movie. How dare you make this movie? It's like, no, how dare you claim to be trying to help us when you're actually helping those who make matters worse in our eyes? That's their main issue. And, you know, th th that is the one area where I'm kind of on the side of the people who are a little bit you know, unnerved and uneasy about this. It's about that contradiction, that hypocrisy that I'm a little bit upset with. I'm not upset with this movie coming out, though. I'm still firmly in the camp of, I want to see this thing. It looks like a movie we need. And this is going to be a great time. And 
I got to tell you, I got a really good laugh because Todd Phillips was interviewed by The Rap. And in that interview, he basically said exactly what I said on episode 99. In the last episode, I kind of concocted like a, like a fan fiction of what it was like to put together this Joker movie. And I, I kind of mentioned, you know, I would not be surprised at all if this is a movie he wanted to make that really had nothing to do with the Joker, had really nothing to do with DC Comics or comic books, it's a story that he wanted to tell, but he knew he couldn't get it made at a big studio and get it seen by a huge number of eyes. Because unfortunately, in today's climate, there's not really a huge interview and there's not a ton of business for films that are quote-unquote real movies about real issues, psychological thrillers, you know, unfortunately now, unless it's a comic book movie or some sort of Star Wars movie or a Fast and Furious movie, people don't really, you know, the studios will not show it the time of day. And unfortunately, in theaters, audiences are kind of giving it the cold shoulder. Maybe because they have so many wonderful, interesting, artsy type of projects they can support at home on their small screen. They'd rather go to the movies to see some big, colorful, crazy blockbuster because they feel like that I can only see. In a, I can only really experience that in a movie theater. But a small character-driven drama, that I can just watch at home. So those kinds of movies are not doing so hot in theaters right now. But let's, let, let me just pass along what Phillips said and how I'm like, I wanted to try to contact him and be like, hey, did you... Did you listen to the Fanboy 99? Listen, I know he didn't, but it's just, I could not help but laugh. He said, we didn't make the movie to push buttons. I literally described to Joaquin at one point in those three months as like, look at it this, look at it, look at this as a way to sneak a real movie in the studio system under the guise of a comic book film. It wasn't, we want to glorify this behavior. It was literally, let's make a real movie with a real budget and we'll call it fucking Joker. That's what it was. So I guess I was right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's literally, he wanted to tell this story. He wanted to make a real movie about a guy's descent into madness. He, you know, this is a story he wanted to tell. It wasn't necessarily a Joker movie, but let's just call it a Joker movie because there's no way a big studio is going to green light a movie like this unless it has DC or Marvel at the top of the banner. So it was just very interesting after last week's show where I was really just kind of, I keep saying last week's show, but it was really interesting after where I was really just spitballing. I was really just trying to quote unquote read between the lines. And then Phillips now is basically saying, yeah, that's exactly what this was. So that was just interesting to see. Um, What's not interesting and a real bummer of a news, of a news item that I want to touch on here next, is that the Ghost Rider series seems to be no more. Remember, Marvel Television had been producing a, a Ghost Rider series starring uh, Gabriel Luna. I almost said Diego Luna. I feel like a lot of people do that. But at the very least, Gabriel Luna, who played the character, the Robbie Reyes incarnation of the character, over on uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC was suddenly going to get to, you know, show what he can really do as the lead in his own Ghost Rider series. But unfortunately, yesterday, news came out that due to some creative differences, 
the series has been scrapped. And in case you thought, oh, maybe that's just, you know, maybe they can fix it or maybe they'll just bring in a new showrunner or so on and so forth. Gabriel Luna has already taken to social media to confirm and announce the demise of his ghostwriter. He said, and I quote, along with a picture of, of the Robbie Reyes ghostwriter giving a thumbs up, he posted to his Instagram, to everyone who loves Robbie and ghostwriter, thank you. I've had the time of my life playing those two guys and I was ready to rock on the new show. The news was surprising, but I've always known that the nature of this business is that until you're there on the day doing the thing, it could still go away. Even then, that next day on the job ain't guaranteed. And then he went and he thanked a bunch of people and he kind of dropped a plug for Terminator Dark Fate. And listen, you know, I, I'm happy for Luna because he seems to be, you know, he's about to hit a career high. You know, he's about to be, you know, like the main bad guy in Terminator Dark Fate, which I really hope does well. Dark Fate is one of those films that I'm really, really hoping does well because James Cameron is back and I like Tim Miller. And listen, Terminator 2 to me still stands in my top 10 greatest films of all time that I've ever seen. So to have Cameron come back now and want to tell the next proper follow-up to T2, uh, listen, you've got my attention. And Diego Luna being in there, listen, I, mean, I, I did it! I, <laughs> I said Diego Luna. Gabriel Luna. You know, he's someone that I've been rooting for for a while. Listen, I have a I have a bias. But, you know, he played my aunt's son, or rather my my aunt played his mother on his El Rey TV series Matador, where he played this like secret agent who's also an international soccer star, and as he goes around the world playing soccer matches, he's also doing missions on the side. And my aunt played his mother in that, and she would always speak fondly of him. And, you know, I remember when, when she passed suddenly a few years ago, uh, you know, Gabriel released a, a statement about it and everyone from the show seemed very affected and, and, and uh, upset about her loss. And, you know, I'll just always kind of have a soft spot. He feels like, you know, like a distant relative in a way, because in the Latin culture, you know, when you work together and you get really tight, you know, you become like family and hearing her tell me stories from the set and hearing how excited she was to be making Matador with him. You know, I'm rooting for Gabriel Luna. So it, it, it's a bummer that we're not going to get that uh, Robbie Reyes Ghostwriter series. But at least he's got Terminator Dark Fate. And hopefully his star continues to rise. But for those of you who are sad to see Ghostwriter go, hey, I'm with you. You know, I never saw Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But, um, you know, from the clips I'd seen of him as Robbie Reyes... He looked like a really cool addition as a, as a special attraction for that season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was really rather looking forward to seeing what he would do with a full starring role, you know, like frontlining a Ghost Rider series for Marvel on Hulu. But it is what it is. And uh, who knows? You know, you never say never, right? So we'll see what happens. Maybe he'll get to appear on another one of the million Marvel series that are coming out soon. And, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's his destiny. You know, he's the guy who shows up for special events, but is not necessarily uh, someone to build the whole series around. I have no idea, but we shall see. And speaking of, you know, superheroes on the small screen, I would be remiss if I didn't spend some time today 
talking to you about the CW's crisis on infinite Earths because DC fans, my goodness, you know, right now I know it's not a, it's not, it's not the best of times to be a fan of DC cinematically speaking, right? Because for some of us, we're still waiting on our Superman movie and for the, and for a lot of others, it's like, you know, there's the people who just feel like what's going on over there. You know, you had Justice League and that seemed to set up stuff and now there's nothing. Yeah, I'm kind of speaking of for like the layman, the people who don't know the whole behind the scenes. You got to imagine to general audiences, it's got to be weird that we got Justice League. You, you, you assembled the team and then there's really this kind of been radio silence ever since. Yeah, there was Aquaman and then there's been like a little tiny bit of chatter about Wonder Woman 1984. But in general, you know, if you're an outsider, you got to be confused about what the hell's going on with DC cinematically speaking. Then if you're a hardcore like us, like myself, you know, there's there are those of us who know just exactly how crazy things have been behind the scenes ever since Justice League. Heck, ever since Batman v Superman, things have been insane behind the scenes. So let's say, let's say since the beginning of 2016, we're going on almost four years, folks, where behind the scenes, DC, there just seems to be a new crazy soap opera of a story every few months. And even when there isn't a story, there's just a general lack of action. There's a lack of announcements. There's a lack of forward progress. And listen, on the one hand, I defend that because Walter Hamada is being way more disciplined than the previous people who ran DC Entertainment, who were perhaps announcing films way too far in advance and counting their chickens before they hatched and focusing more on world building than on telling great standalone stories or great or, or making great individual movies. So on the one hand, I'm with you there, Walter. But on the other, it's like, listen, I want to see some of these movies already. I, I, I want to know that my favorite characters are on their way. I want to know that, you know, that there is some sort of movement on a Superman movie. I want to know, like, what's going on with The Flash? Are we, are we going to get some sort of formal announcement? I know that Andy Muschietti is now, you know, he's running a victory lap thanks to It Chapter 2. And he's basically speaking openly about the fact that he's going to tackle The Flash but there's not really a lot of news on The Flash. No real confirmation of who's going to star in it or when it'll get produced. You know, so basically, this is all to say that DC on film continues to be kind of a thing where it's evolving. It's going to take some time to kind of see how that bounces back. We got Joker coming out next week. We got Birds of Prey coming out in a few months. Then we got Wonder Woman 1984. You know, so let's see how things look in a year or two. But... For now, the best place for DC fans seems to be TV because, my goodness, all the information that comes out of Crisis on Infinite Earths makes this seem like a fanboy dream come true. They continue to add names, and the latest one they added, who's going to make a cameo appearance, is <laughs> the Huntress from the WB's short-lived Birds of Prey TV series from 17 years ago. It's like, what are we doing? But it's awesome. So they are going to go ahead and have Ashley Scott, who played Huntress slash Helena Kyle, appear in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. And that's not all. Since we last spoke, they announced that Tom Welling, 
from Smallville and Erica Durant from Smallville are going to be returning and reprising their roles. Like, are you kidding me? And this is a few weeks after they announced that Brandon Routh, my boy, Brandon Routh, who is, you know, for a lot of you, you know, if Man of Steel was your Superman hill to die on and you were waiting for a sequel and therefore Henry Cavill is kind of like, you know, your, your Superman who you're waiting to be given his due. Well, if we, if we, if we, rewind, if we rewind back to 06, that's me with Superman Returns and with Brandon Routh. Superman Returns was my Superman movie that was very polarizing and that upset a lot of people that I would defend until my dying breath. And Brandon Routh was my Superman actor who I would say, you know, even though the film was divisive, I thought he was a high point. I want to see him continue to fly, which is what a lot of people say about Cavill. So for me, this is so unbelievably gratifying to have Ralph returning as a version of Superman. He teased something on his Instagram where you see the spit curl. He posted a picture of his silhouette and the hashtag is returning soon. Stay tuned. And it's like, oh, wow, Brandon Ralph back as Superman. You know, the only way I can describe this is let's fast forward about 10 years. Now it's the year is 2029. The CW's Arrowverse is still thriving. And you find out that Henry Cavill is going to get to play an older version of Superman, something that it doesn't look like he's ever going to get to do again on the big screen. Think about how great you'd feel. I mean, you're going to feel a little bit of that sadness of that, oh, what might have been. But you're going to be excited to see him with that S on his chest again. And that's exactly where I'm at. And, you know, when you look at the, at the overall scope of Crisis on Infinite Earth, where you're going to have Brandon Routh, Tyler Hoechlin, Tom Welling all playing Superman. You're going to have Elizabeth Tullock and Erica Durant playing Lois Lane. You got John Cryer from Superman 4 in there as Lex Luthor. You got Jonathan Shake as Jonah Hex. You got Kevin Conroy playing an older Batman. You got John Wesley Shipp returning as the old Flash. You got former Robin Burt Ward. You got, you know, it, there's just... It's crazy. The fan service here is going to be insane. You're, and it's already paying off dividends because aside from Brandon Ralph posting that, that, that silhouette of himself with the spit curl, you got Erica Durant posting pictures in front of a barn with Tom Welling. And Tom Welling's wearing a red and black flannel and he actually looks kind of supermanly. I wasn't sure how he was going to look at this point. You know, I, I haven't really been tracking how he's aged. But in this picture, he looks tall, his chest is wide and powerful looking, his hair has got a side part. I mean, listen, he's in regular street clothes, but he looks like a guy who could definitely play a version of Superman, you know, tomorrow. So it's just insane. And then when you consider the fact that they don't seem to have a problem with double dipping. They don't seem to have a problem with having an actor who's already playing another established character in this universe, also playing another character in this universe, as is evidenced 
by the fact that Brandon Routh is both, you know, Adam and now Superman. Uh, evidenced by the fact that, um, oh, I just blanked out on you. But you know what? That, that, that That's probably the best example right there. So we could leave that there because what I'm getting at is that you've got Mark Hamill who already plays the trickster. But what is Mark Hamill best known for in the DC universe? He's known for being the most epic Joker ever. And when you've got Kevin Conroy, the Batman voice actor, who has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe against Hamill's Joker for something like 25 years now, you've got to imagine that one of the next big announcements, or perhaps they're going to save it as a surprise for the Crisis on Infinite Earths event that's happening later this year, you've got to imagine that it is not too far-fetched that we may get to see a live-action Joker that's voiced by Mark Hamill. Or, possibly, Mark Hamill in the Joker makeup. Oh, boy. And the, the reason I said voiced at first is because he already did that once. He did it on that Birds of Prey series I was telling you about. If you look it up on YouTube, it's one of those crazy fun things where they had hired a stand-in for the Joker. Because, you know, Mark Hamill doesn't necessarily look like the Joker, but he sounds just like him. Um, and they hired a, you know, so they hired a stand-in, and Mark Hamill provided the voice. So whether they do that again, or they actually get Hamill under the makeup, you know, I think we can probably, it, it's not crazy to think that amidst all of this other great fan service, we may get Mark Hamill's Joker involved on the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Like, are you kidding me right now? I need to watch this. Just like last year, where I saw the one that they, and it's funny because now I don't remember what the name of that crossover was, but I actually went through the trouble of watching it. You remember a couple of you gave me a watch list, things that you felt would prepare me for it, and I watched what you suggested, and then I watched the crossover, and then we talked about it here on the show. I assembled a round table and we talked about a bunch of stuff and that big crossover was one of them. And that's going to be happening again this year because I'm telling you right now, folks, I cannot afford to miss Crisis on Infinite Earths, even if it's just for a fleeting glimpse to see my boy Brandon Routh back as Superman. Um, now moving over into something else DC-related. You know, I know I was just talking a bunch of smack about DC on film, but there is some cool news about DC on film right now that I would like to share with you because James Gunn has officially begun filming on his The Suicide Squad. He's already confirmed that John Cena has shot stuff. He's talking about his influences. He shows the picture. He, he shows the gift he got on his first day on the set of the new movie. You know, he's... He, we're off to the races. We're off to the races. And before I, I kind of talk about anything, I do want to point something out where in the middle of last year, I told you guys that behind the scenes at DC Entertainment, there was a lot of chatter about the creators and actors who were in these films, the people responsible for these films, about having them be brand ambassadors, 
about having them be the ones who break news directly to you. And you know, that's something I've been talking to you guys about, how DC seems to desperately want to take control back of the narrative because they know that from 2016 through 2017 or 2018, you know, they really kind of turned the other cheek and allowed the bloggers, allowed, you know, uh, troll fans to really kind of decide what the DC universe is on, t uh, on film. And they really didn't fire back whenever erroneous reports would come out. They didn't debunk when like 37 different DC movies seemed to be getting green lights. They really just kind of like backed away and kind of just let everyone else talk about all this stuff. But meanwhile, it was harming the brand. It was making them seem like they did not have a game plan. It was making them seem like a kind of hapless, silly, you know, directionless studio with a franchise that should be an excuse to print money that for some reason is just continues to kind of underperform and create more drama than anything else. So I mentioned that amongst other things, one of the things that they wanted to do was to have their people kind of start breaking the stories directly to you. And I said, do not be surprised to start seeing directors and actors involved with DC things just come right out on social media and say, hey, everyone, I'm doing this, or so-and-so is in my movie, or here's the new logo, or here's my, you know. And, and what did James Gunn do about a week and a half ago? He tweeted out the entire cast list for the Suicide Squad. He, th that could have been a THR exclusive. That could have been a variety story. They could have milked it and sold a few names to the newspaper every week so then they, they, they could do like a gradual cast announcement. They could have done any number of very traditional ways to get the news out there. But instead of doing that, James Gunn himself said, hey world, these are the people in the cast. Very excited to be working with them. Don't get too attached. The Suicide Squad. And, you know, I just think it's a really cool, very exciting, very novel way to get information out to the fans, out to the public. And I'm also just excited to know that, you know, that they're still, that they stuck with that, you know, because I've been hearing about that for a while. The whole, you know, having their creators and artists themselves be the, the, the brand ambassadors, the bringer of news and information for these films they have on the way. You know, and it also, you know, I, it also calls to mind to me how, remember how I warned you guys? Well, not I warned you, but I, I mentioned that for Birds of Prey, the people that they'd hired to handle the costuming weren't there to make like big fancy suits or superhero costumes, but rather they're there to stylize these characters usually using regular street clothes. And, you know, from the first looks that we've been given these last couple of weeks at Birds of Prey... That's something else I told you about that uh, has bore out, that has bore some fruit. And, uh, you know, I'm going to continue, even though I'm not writing published, you know, exclusive scoops for the website anymore, which, by the way, I am going to start writing for the website again very soon. RevengeOfTheFans.com is actually officially kind of lurching back into action this coming Monday, September 30th. So uh, next week is basically kind of like the relaunch for the site, but that that was kind of a tangent just now. <laughs> I mentioned that because, you know, 
while I may not be writing scoops and stuff, you know, I'm still going to be talking about these little things I hear. So for those of you who've been noticing that a lot of the things I talk about here or have written about elsewhere have quietly been all getting confirmed in, you know, during these months where I've been away, uh, thanks for taking note. You know, some of you have, have definitely gone out of your way to let me know that, you know, that you've noticed all these little things that I said in this past year or so have slowly but surely been coming true. You know, like the Superman Red Sun comes to light and that cast list that I gave you guys last January, which is getting confirmed lately. And, you know, it's just it, it's been rewarding through all of the ups and downs of these last few months and trying to figure out what it is I want to do and what it is I want to get out of all this. You know, it has been tremendously um rewarding to see kind of sit on the sidelines and see a, a lot of the stuff that I've told you about uh, just kind of happening. So thank you to, for all of you who've kind of kept the faith and continue to support me. Uh, just a reminder, I'm going to continue to try to bring you all of the very best insights and intel and fun rumors I hear along the way right here on the Fanboy Podcast. And... Um, before I switch to my next topic, I actually want to give you guys a chance to leave because uh, the next subject is going to be professional wrestling. And if that's not something that uh, does anything for you, then, you know, the, this next segment is not going to really uh, do it for you. So if you've listened thus far, you know, thank you, everyone who's listened to uh, the Fanboy 100. And please, if you haven't yet, go leave me a review. Go tell your friends the show is back. And, you know, I'm very excited to be back. And, you know, barring some other kind of crazy scenario or, or health issue, you know, I will be back next week with episode 101. Um, but, yeah, so now it's time to get into some AEW, into some Wednesday night ratings, you know, the Wednesday night wars are coming upon us next week. And you know what's cool? I kind of get to be a part of it right from the outset because your boy is about to do his uh, whole super fan thing and he's going to get in his car next Wednesday and he's going to drive from Flushing, Queens down to Washington, D.C., to the Capitol Center to witness the first ever AEW Dynamite on TNT. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to be there for that. I mean, I've got all kinds of, you know, uh, theories or, or, or things that will make me absolutely lose my mind. And one of them, the, the, I, the, the, the first one that comes to mind is that main event. In the main event of the show, you have Chris Jericho and two mystery partners in the main event of the very first Dynamite. And look, traditionally speaking, historically speaking, when you launch a new show like this, you want to make a big splash. You know, remember when Nitro launched back in 1995 on TNT? What did they do? They had Lex Luger, who, as far as everyone else knew, was still a WWF superstar, show up on Nitro in like a secret deal that they'd worked out with him because he had never actually re-signed his new WWF contract. 
and he had secretly negotiated a return to AEW. And that was like the big buzz thing. You know, the next day on Tuesday morning, after Nitro had aired its first thing, the big thing wrestling fans were talking about the next day was the shocking debut or re-debut of Lex Luger on WCW Monday Nitro. And so there's an you know there's a there's a precedent that has been set. Even when TNA attempted to reignite the Monday Night Wars back in 2010, you know, their first episode on a Monday night, which granted it wasn't their first episode of Impact, but it was the first episode going head to head against WWE, the first attempt to try to put Vince McMahon and his company on notice. And there were a million big surprises on that show. And people who people didn't know had joined TNA who were now showing up on the screen and trying to make some noise for TNA. And granted, that didn't really work because they didn't have the creative brain trust there. And ultimately, TNA just kind of looked to most of us like WCW 2.0. And that's why a lot of us were like, eh, I'm good. AEW doesn't have that problem. So AEW has a chance next week to use their first episode to really take control of the wrestling conversation. And something that I cannot stop thinking about is the fact that Cult of Personality, the 90s alternative rock song, Cult of Personality, does not belong to Vince McMahon. It does not belong to the WWE. Anyone willing to pay for the rights to cult of personality can use that on their show. And that means that if CM Punk did decide to return to wrestling and make AEW his new home, how absolutely insane would the reaction be if... After the, the first mystery partner comes out, who could also be someone huge, by the way, but I figure you got to save Punk for last. So after, you know, the Young Bucks have come out uh, and Kenny Omega, after Jericho has come out, after whoever the second mystery partner comes out, if you hear, the people are going to absolutely lose their minds. And listen, you could totally bring in Punk as like an epic heel alongside Chris Jericho, because Jericho already kind of is playing up that angle of being like the old veteran who's here to show these young kids what it's really like. And, you know, and he's like taking credit for all of the good in the company and trying to just basically, you know, there's kind of like a, a an older versus younger dynamic here already. And Punk could absolutely come in as that veteran presence here to kind of like put the young guys on, 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 on notice here. It's like, I'm the one of the pipe bomb. I'm the one who's the best in the world. And if you kids want to try to take control of the wrestling world, you got to come through me. Yeah, you could totally see Punk kind of going there. He's always kind of plays these smarmy, know-it-all heels. And that's why I kind of can't stop shaking this idea of like, how amazing would it be to have Punk be one of the mystery tags, you know, tag partners for Chris Jericho, and to use this debut episode of Dynamite to completely change the landscape 
Because if they can get an A-lister like Punk, who has a ton of cred with wrestling fans, to suddenly show up on Dynamite, it's a game changer. It, 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 it totally changes the paradigm of wrestling kind of as we know it. The, the, the balance of power starts to shift tremendously when they have names like Jericho and possibly Punk over on the other channel now competing against NXT upstarts. You know what I mean? This is really a chance for AEW to come out with guns blazing. And thankfully, you know, they seem to get it. They seem to get that what they need to do is not try to mimic WWE. You know, there's a great um, couple of quotes that have come out from the Young Bucks, from Nick and Matt Jackson, about how they intend to make AEW succeed where TNA Impact failed. And he said, you you know, Nick Jackson said, you have to be different. You can't try to be them. The one thing TNA did wrong was try to be a lesser version of them. We can't be them because we're not competing with them. We have to be different and we have to listen to the fans. And honestly, I mean, to me, that sounds like a great uh, riff on what Eric Bischoff's big mantra was when he was turning Nitro into the Monday Night Raw killer that it became for 83 weeks. You know, he wasn't going to try to beat them at their own game. He was going to try to be an alternative. He was going to try to be something different, not just I'm going to do what they're doing, but slightly better or a little different. You know, he approached it from how do we reinvent what a wrestling show is? What is it that they're doing that we can learn from that isn't working with their audience that we can adapt and, and make something fresh and exciting? You know, so that's... That, that, that's music to my ears. And then Matt chimed in, Matt Jackson said, you know, they feel so neglected. He's referring to the fans. He says, the things that they want, they just don't get. What we learned early on when we did our first show, All In, was we built this entire show and gave the fans the finishes they wanted. And they came out of that show feeling so good. Now, while I like that second quote, it's also important to note that it's a totally different ball game when you're trying to do weekly episodic television and you're trying to make these pay-per-views kind of, you know, heighten stories and build to the next chapter in stories. All In, especially at the time, was a standalone event. And it's very easy to send the crowd home happy when you're not trying to get them to tune in tomorrow night. You know what I mean? When you're not trying to leave open cliffhangers because there's going to be some big follow-up this coming week and then the next chapter plays out next month and the next pay-per-view and so on and so forth. You know, All In kind of happened in a vacuum. And when you're booking these mega shows in a vacuum, it's very easy. I mean, I shouldn't say it's very easy, but like, you know, the, the philosophy is fundamentally different when you're trying to do long-term planning, when you're trying to plant a seed here and have it pay off in three months, and when you're trying to have the underdog lose the big match so that when he wins it eventually, it's that much more gratifying. So it's going to be very fascinating to see if, if the Young Bucks and Cody Rhodes and, and you know the, the, the creative minds calling the shots at uh, AEW are able to keep this goodwill going when they're not just trying to create happy endings all the time. You know, now is where they really have to start 
making these stories take a while to pay off. So that's going to be very interesting to see how they do it. I hope they're prepared to do it. But the fact that they know they have to be different and not just try to ape what WWE is doing, to me, is a step in the right direction. But to me, one of the other great pluses about AEW arriving next week, about there being a true competitor to WWE for the first time in 18 years, a true competitor. One of the things that I love more than anything is that this gives the power back to the wrestlers. The wrestlers now feel like there's more than one place to work. There's more than one place to get on primetime TV and grow my brand. There's more than one way to do this. Because I feel like one of the underlying reasons that the product in WWE has gotten so stale these last 15 years isn't just because of all of the excessive scripting and the overproducing of the talent. But it, rather, I think one of, the, one of the main reasons it's gotten so stagnant is because the talent feels de, you know, how do you, depowered. They feel like they've had their wings clipped. A lot of these guys, they come up through the indies honing their craft, learning all the different tools of the trade, all the different things they could do to make an audience love or hate them. And then they come up to WWE and then get told what to say, how to act, what to do, and they get micromanaged. So all of a sudden, instead of being this vibrant up-and-coming talent who's improvising and reaching into his set of skills that he's honed while touring the country and in some cases the world if they're going to Japan and Mexico. You know, instead of letting a performer reach into their bag of tricks, now you're telling them, no, here's exactly what you can do and how you can do it and you have to do it in three minutes. Oh, and you can't do these moves. You know, these moves that everyone finds so exciting that, that really grew your fan base. We need you to wrestle a safer style and uh, basically just kind of adhere to our model. And that's what WWE has been doing to these wrestlers for a long time. So even the guys who never left, even the guys who were there, their heart is hardly in it anymore. For some of them, I swear, like Randy Orton slept through a lot of these last 15 years, after his initial push, after evolution and all that stuff, you kind of got the sense he's been, he's been spinning his wheels. And if he had some other place to go, had there been like a true number two, Orton and people like that would have gone. Punk probably wouldn't have left wrestling. Because that's another thing too. When I was talking to, I was actually talking to Tavo Borrego about this a little while ago. You know, just a private discussion, like not Twitter or anything. But when I was talking to Tavo about it, it's like, I always got the sense that when Punk left, it wasn't because he was done with wrestling. It's because he was done with WWE and he didn't want to go to any other place because why risk the injury? Why put all of that strain on your life, on your body, on, on and risk, you know, screwing up your life in a high school gym? Or doing some indie, you know, it's just, it's not worth it. You know, it's people like Punk, people who've been to WrestleMania, who've been world champions, who've been to the top of the mountain, you're not going to convince them to suddenly go back to ROH 
or to do all that sort of stuff. Yeah, they'll do one-offs, and sure, there are exceptions to that. But when once you've reached the top of the mountain and become the creme de la creme, like a CM Punk did, the last thing you want to do now is go do it for one-eighth of the pay and, you know, risk getting injured and risk having the rest of your life taken from you and kind of just becoming some broken-down old has-been. You don't want to do that. You want to stay where the bright lights are. You want to go be able to hone your craft and, and use your skills and your talent and your unbelievable abilities. You want to do that for the biggest audience possible. You want to do it for prime time. You want the world to see, you know, once you get up there, it's very hard to, to then say, hey, can you go all the way back down and kind of just start doing things at this level, but for like hardly any of that amount of pay or exposure, you know? So for me, had there been a true alternative, Punk would have just gone there. He wouldn't have retired. He would have just said, all right, Vince, if this is how you want to do things, that's great, but I'm out of here. And that's what AEW gives people now. It's a real, I'm out of here. And sure, maybe the pay won't be as great as WWE, at least not at first. But you know what? It's prime time, it's TNA, and it's a shot fired at Vince McMahon, at Stephanie McMahon, at Triple H, at anyone there in the hierarchy of that company who, who these wrestlers have felt like, you've held us down, you've limited me, you've clipped my wings, you, you know, even in like contract negotiations, how can you even really ask for a raise if they already know that you have no leverage? They don't have to pay you through the nose when they know that, all right, well, either you take this money that we're offering you or you go wrestle where no one can really see you anymore, except for the really hardcore fans who follow indie wrestling. The, the actual rest of the world, the mainstream wrestling fans, the ones who control how pop culture views wrestling, they won't know you from a hole in the wall anymore. So, hey, if you want to go make less money and kind of be invisible to anyone who's not a hardcore wrestling fan, go ahead. You know, and that's the attitude WWE has been able to employ. So what do you end up with wrestlers who seem neutered, who their, their drive and their passion and their excitement for it is gone. Just like when Daniel Bryan, quote unquote, retired for a while before ultimately coming back, I, the, he's another one where it's like, had there been like a WCW or like a real number two, I don't think we would have had all those years without Daniel Bryan. You know, yes, Vince McMahon and his doctors said you can't wrestle anymore, but clearly he can still wrestle. And he just kind of dealt with it because, you know, there's it's the only game in town. So what I like about AEW is it brings the power back to the boys. The boys now have a bargaining chip. And the boys now have a company that's run by fellow boys. You know, I, I know that some, like Eric Bischoff hates calling wrestlers the boys, the boys in the back, but it's just what I'm used to. As a smart mark, that's what I call the, you know, the, the wrestlers in the dressing room. They're the boys. And the fact that AEW is kind of run by the boys and it has a mantra of like, we want to let you do you. We want to go back to promos that are less scripted. We're going to give you just bullet points. We're not going to micromanage what moves you can and cannot do. We're going to let you, you know, really 
re-explore and rediscover, or for some of these young guys, discover for the first time ever what it's like to rely on yourself and your instincts and your ability to read the room, to look out at that crowd and go, you know what? What I can do to set this crowd off next isn't in the script, but from experience, I know how to do it. Like they have that ability now. They don't have that ability on Raw or on SmackDown anymore. You know, and maybe they have some of it in NXT. I honestly haven't kept up with NXT in a few years. I don't know how the product has evolved since the heyday. You know, I used to watch a lot when Kevin Owens first premiered and he powerbombed Sami Zayn onto the apron. It was a really great era for wrestling in NXT at that time, back in like 2015. I don't know what they're doing these days, but I know that on the big main A-list brands, the wrestlers are so tightly managed and so just kind of micromanaged that we're not really getting the full access to what they can do. And in AEW, I have a feeling that we're going to get to see what some of these people can really do when people actually have faith in them, know their strengths and weaknesses, and help you know, emphasize those strengths and de-emphasize those weaknesses. I swear sometimes on, on, on in WWE, the weaknesses are like practically put on, you know, on display. And I don't know why. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm very excited. Next Wednesday, I'm probably going to be doing some like vlogs or some live stuff on my Instagram or, or whatever on the road to uh, AEW Dynamite. I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what kind of content I want to create because to me, it's, it's, it's the first time in my life. Okay, I've been a wrestling fan for around 31 years now. And this is the first time I've ever had the real opportunity or the real desire to be at a place where history can be made. You know, I, 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 was, I was not able to attend the first Raw you know, I was only like 10 years old and that was during a period where I really wasn't watching wrestling that much. I wasn't able to attend the first Nitro at, uh, at that mall in Minnesota. What is it? The Mall of America. Um, I had no interest when TNA launched their Impact stuff and their weekly pay-per-views and all that sort of stuff. You know, and in general, you know, there, there have been very few moments for history that weren't WWE history. You know, like I, I probably could have gone to a WrestleMania or two over the years. But again, it's already happened. You know, WrestleMania one, you know, the it just the bloom's already off the rose. For next week, AEW Dynamite, October 2nd, TNT. I get to sit live in the crowd and I get to see what this company is gonna do to try to make the noise that's going to put them to the top of the wrestling world. It's not going to happen overnight, but I have faith in these people. And what they've already created so far has impressed me so much that I'm basically going to, I'm going to have to spend like probably a combined nine hours when you think about the before the show and the after the show. I'm not going to arrive home probably until like four or five in the morning. And then... I have to wake up at 7.15 and take the kids to school. So I'm going out on a limb here, but it's because I think next week 
I'm going to get to witness history. And I cannot wait for that. So everyone, thank you for listening to the Fanboy 100. I hope you enjoyed this 100th episode of the show. And uh, we'll, you know, we're, we're going to keep in touch because there's some big stuff going on next week. So please, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. <laughs>